thought we'd already started. <laughs> cool. So this is my very first podcast episode. Which and so it's mine. Cool. And I have no name for this podcast yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. Um, with me here today is Anne Smith. She's a friend of mine. She's a registered psychologist with 35 years of experience. Um, it sounds crazy. <laughs> what, to hear you me talk back to you about yourself? <laughs> so it's probably how old you are. I, I've yeah, probably I'm kind 30, of, so even less. Oh, shit. I started working in this field before you were born. Yeah. Doesn't that sound crazy? Got a lot of experience. <laughs> <laughs> it's trial and error, so there's been a lot of errors and a lot of learning on the way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just want to touch base on some of the things and the fields you've worked in uh, before. So here we got drug addiction in hospital settings and detox, uh, social welfare home for children, uh, refugees, children and, adoles uh, children and adoles uh, adolescent mental health, to Korowai, which I don't actually know what that is, but I'm sure you will explain to me what that is. Jeez, you want me to go through my CV? Well, <laughs> I was just curious because I actually Googled it and... Uh, Does it come up on the internet? Actually, it's got a website. My whole life's not really much <laughs> it. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, and then freelance till present day. Um, so yeah, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. One thing on your resume that I didn't quite understand intuitively as I read it was Handicap Internal Expatriate. Handicap International. Say again? Handicap International. Okay. Which is an off branch from uh, Doctors Without Frontiers. And what's that? Where do I start? Generally uh, speaking. General speaking, well, these are a bunch of doctors who went out, I think, I can't remember if it was after Cambodia, after Vietnam War or something. Anyway, comes out from when there's a war and ugly shit happening, these people who get employed to fix it afterwards. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's engineers when it's about fixing bridges and it's doctors when it's about fixing people. You know, half of them are dead, a quarter of them are wounded and need repair and then um, whatever's left is kind of okay and all right so so it's after disaster kind of care and so this is funded by um, European public money yeah, something. something like that Brussels uh, and after the war in Cambodia which would have been in the 70s. Don't quote me on any of the numbers and the dates because I really sure. never did listen That's that right. much <laughs> at school. I understand the stories really well, but the numbers baffle me a bit. Um, so anyway, after the Cambodia um, um, war, some of the doctors without frontiers decided that it, was, it would be a good idea to look at um, people who'd lost their limbs from landmines. No. And that's how they went off the general doctoring and went specialized into um, handicapped. Because that was a common thing in the Cambodian? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's my, the, to my knowledge, uh, it, I don't know how to, how to word this, it is the one of the conflicts that's got the biggest 
landmines that I know of. Um, they were, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking with my mouth. Things are coming up and I'm going, and inside my head is going, well, that's not true. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's plenty more. <laughs> so is uh, this, uh, sorry. So anyway, these guys cut out a little branch from Doctors Without Frontiers and focused on handicaps. So, um, you know, people needing crutches, uh, artificial legs, stuff like that. And, and then they grew because the need grew. And so you can see how there was symbiosis between the people who make ammunition and guns and weapons and those who fix the people after that. Mm. Isn't it wonderful how things gel together? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> can I ask them, so then doctors, say that again, the full name? Doctors Without Frontiers. Okay, Med- so Médecins Sans Frontières? Okay. Mm-hmm. Does that mean? Doctors Without Borders. Yes. Right, okay. Sorry. Okay, so then you're, well, not you, but on one hand, the doctors are showing up dealing with the physical elements of the individuals who have gone through this experience. But then you've got your background, which is not that, which is Absolutely. Then dealing with the people in the after effects and their mental health, let's say, or in the psychological sphere, having had these events in their life. That's right. And so after, so that was in the 70s that they sort of did that little um, starting Handicap International. And by the time I turn up in the 90s, um, well, they've they've grown and grown and grown and become a giant big organization, an NGO uh, to an international level that have their own um, begging service. That's not the word I'm looking for. Um, You're looking for a professional word? I'm looking for a professional word that says fundraising. Here you go. That's what it is. <laughs> fundraising, lobbying, and all that kind of political stuff, you know, to get the money to send people like me out there on the field. Yeah. So there's about half the stuff that's employed in France to do admin, logistics, and that kind of stuff. And the other half that's employed on the field in Bosnia, Angola, um, Sierra Leone, wherever, you know. And so, yeah, so I, I did, um, I think, three contracts with him and had a lot of fun and learned a lot of things because as a young psychologist, um, when you get dumped in a country where the, the problems outweigh the solutions, you get to have a lot of responsibility and a lot of freedom into what you do. And you get to do many, many mistakes and learn heaps. Yeah. Three contracts, yeah. so that's three contracts, three destinations? Yeah. Angola, Sierra Leone, and Bosnia. Okay, Bosnia, I'm from Albania, so Bosnia yeah. is really close. Yeah, yeah, so it is. So tell me a bit about that then. So I spent a year in Bosnia. The, the reason why I went there is because some of the young people during the conflict got wounded and got... Sorry to interrupt then. Context. Bosnia, what year are you there? This is after the war. 97, yeah, after yeah, the war. Yeah, this is after the world. The UN declares that there's a crisis there and they send troops and people and stuff like that there to sort of help out and sort out and you're part of that movement. 
Uh, I, I'm, I, I come after the yeah. Cowboys. I okay, come okay. completely after the Cowboys. Okay. So when a conflict finishes, my understanding of it, again, is my reading. When a conflict finishes, um, it finishes when an internal, um, um, what do you call it, civil war finishes is because either they find a solution themselves or they send in somebody, they, they call in somebody international. So the UN came in and that means soldiers from any kind of country, it could be New Zealand, United States, Russia, you name it, anybody could have come in there. So they did, they, they finished the war um, and, then, and then the cowboys come in. Yeah. So the cowboys are the surgeons, the Red Cross, the people who do emergency work. Yeah. I'm not part of them, I'm a psychologist. What yeah. kind of emergency do you do in psychology? Well, not in that context. Crisis work maybe, but that doesn't look anything like crisis work in cushy little New Zealand doesn't look anything like run of the mill, a gentle day in Bosnia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about different levels of understanding here. And um, so it was like the cowboys come in. And then when all the dust is starting to settle, we realized that they've done emergency surgery and stuff like that. Um, they've set up camp hospitals, they've um, done a whole bunch of emergency measures. Um, the local government doesn't have the money or even the organization or the logistics to deal with anything. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and, and they're busy, if they're doing anything, they're busy providing firewood for the winter for the people so that they stay alive. They're busy fixing up all the exploded sewage system that gets mixed up with the drinking water system, you know. So there's a lot of emergency work. They don't have the resources to take care of the, of the trauma that people went through. So, and that's where Handicap International comes in and deals with people who were wounded one way or another, psychologically, emotionally, even physically, because that doesn't come on its own, these, these emotional repercussions of, of, uh, from physical sure. um, wounds. So, and so that's a little bit of a set of the, of the context. I can tell you about my understanding of the whole conflict, um, mm. but that's, I don't know if it's a, a conversation for today. You can go for it if you like. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you briefly about yes, a book that I read. It's called The Bridge Over the River Drina. A river Rina. Drina. Drina. D-R-I-N-A. Um, the Bridge Over the river, river Drina is the perspective of a bridge. Mm, you told me this before, actually. I remember. I, yes, because yeah. this helped me understand the, this situation so much. Uh, this bridge was built a thousand years ago, um, again, don't quote me on numbers, it might be 2000, it might be 800, I yeah. don't know. Many, many, many generations ago, build, uh, a bridge was built. And so, um, since the build has been, the bridge has been built, again, um, the, the, the life carries on, and the old people come and sit on the bridge and look at the water going past. But the old people from both sides of the bridge, because there's a village on every, si on, on every side. And on one side, 
there is the Ottoman Empire, which is Turkey, mm. and on the other side is the Austro-Hungarian or Prussian Empire, which is the Germanic people. And they keep invading each other through that bridge. And so for 50 years, the South invades to the North, and the people have to change their religion, and they have to abide by whatever the head of the of the Turkish Empire is going to decide that they should be doing. And then the other ones from the north um, invade back. And then the, now the people on the south have to start changing their religion. The other ones, yeah, no. And so, and over the centuries, there's a backwards and forwards going of this invasion. And the people change their religion and they change their language and they change whatever they need to change. And the old people of both sides sit on the bridge and just watch the river flowing. And they get along really well. And just looking at um, how long the bridge has been there and how the movement of the people and the conflicts and the misunderstandings of the people has been happening for the last thousand years gave me that idea that diving into the details of the local socio-political context was probably not super relevant, you know. The people that I were working with and for didn't have a really good understanding of what the the socio-political context was anyway, you know. Um, and I did read plenty of books about that, but it just baffled me and didn't explain anything because I had to work with human beings who were suffering and that wasn't relevant. They didn't hate their cousins that were um, from another ethnic background or their spouses or whoever, you know. They, they were, they, they'd been a multicultural society for, for a long time in Sarajevo um, you know, in Sarajevo is a multicultural city, just as Paris or Wellington. Mm. Um, and and the interesting thing was these poor people didn't understand when the conflict started and bombs started falling onto them, yeah. their first thought was, well, that's a mistake. That's the, the country people out there who don't understand anything about anything. Surely... Um, you know, Italy, France, England, Germany are going to intervene real fast and we'll get this sorted. Yeah. It took five years for anybody to get in there. They couldn't believe it. Week after week after week, they just couldn't believe it. As far as they were concerned, they were living in a capital city of Europe. Yeah. You're there now So 98? Yeah, 97, 98, something like that. Um, and so, during that conflict, um, some of the wounded people were children and they got expatriated by Red Cross or whoever took, uh, took care of them at the time um, from the field hospitals that they had in underground places in Sarajevo. There was movements of saving the kids. Um, and so these, the, the, a bunch of kids landed in France, in the region where I had been living, um, and there was a need to bring them back and have somebody with them to help them readjust to a city that was broken, half their family that was dead, half their schoolmates that were 
um, either dead or moved to another region because by then the Serbs were in Serbia, the Bosnians were in Bosnia yeah. and the Croats were in Croatia. How old are these kids? What, what kind of age range are you talking about? So by the time I met them, uh, the youngest must have been 13, the something like 13. that. So they'd been away for five years. Um, and also what happened, so they left with their mothers. Uh, some of them were older brothers of children who had been uh, wounded. And what they were doing by accompanying their family member is trying to get away from carrying weapons. Because yeah. that's what would have happened, you know, if you're 17 years old and you find yourself in the middle of a conflict, the pressure is going to be, go defend your country. Yeah, not to interrupt, but the first thing that came to mind when you said 13, the youngest was 13. I was like, okay, how much older do they get? Because the old, once they become 16, 17, they become military men. They exactly. can't actually get much older before they get taken away by the military to fight. That's so right. So they can't be, so 13 is actually to some degree quite old. So the, I'm talking five years later when they're coming yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. So that one would have left when he was eight. Yeah. Or okay. 10 or something like that because there were many movements. Right. And so I wasn't in the picture then because I was in Sierra Leone doing other things. But um, there was two, two expatriates who came, who accompanied these children back. So we're talking children, um, teenagers, their mothers, their sisters, their, their older brother, um, but not the rest of the family because all the fathers stayed behind. Yeah. And all the military abled men, cousins and everything stayed behind as well. So these kids came back um, and found it quite difficult to readjust to, to Sarajevo. And when they'd done a, a good year readjusting or a good six months or something, I don't know exactly. Um, then the expatriates who were running this thing uh, had their contract finished and had other plans in mind, so they went to do something else. And so that's when I got, came into the picture and um, Handicap International asked me if I'd go over there and gave me three months. So here was my my mission. That's what they call it, a mission. So go over there, your contract's a year, spend three months to evaluate if we need to close down this contract completely because the kids are well adjusted now. Your contract. Or my contract. Or if we're going to open the contract to helping other people around. So mm. <laughs> we're talking a country torn by war Guess what? There was other needs. Mm -hmm, for sure. <laughs> three months ain't doing nothing. <laughs> so during those three months, I visited everybody, uh, hired and fired some staff, um, and put together an idea of what to do next. And what to do next on this one was uh, look after whoever could fit under the contract. And there was so much needs. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Uh, take care of and look after. Yeah. And you're talking to, about children still? Yes. Okay. We're so, talking about teenagers. So, so. what, uh, what um, I want to say services, but what are the parts of the program where you're directly in contact with children? How are you working with them? The parts of the program is all the time where I'm directly in contact with children. There's zero paperwork, um, reports and anything Tens like on. that. Yeah, it's completely hands-on. So when I'm looking over there, I'm seeing those kids every day. There's a kind of an open room where they can turn up 
and that's what they do. They turn up, they, they play cards, they smoke cigarettes, and then they start to drink. So I catch the drink, pour it down the toilet and say, hey, look, guys, there's rolls here. Um, you know, they also play chicken with traffic. And, you know, th these are people who are coming out of a war situation and the adrenaline is not pumping anymore from the situation. So now they're manufacturing it other, in other ways. So running That's a interesting. Group. I like what you just uh, correlated there. That um, the adrenaline is not pumping because of the war, so severe stress inducing their body into that state. Now the circumstances are gone, but their body's in that heightened state, and now they're preoccupying themselves. And that's what's causing this edge or this behavior, yes. or what we would deem like somehow on the end of riskier behavior. Completely risky yeah. behavior. Yeah, not a little bit, completely. They drink themselves into falling into the gutter um, and they drink fast, so it's dangerous. Mm. You know, binge drinking in New Zealand is bad enough, but that's mm. nothing <laughs> compared to what Bosnian kids were doing. But anyway, so running this, pro this program, this teenage kind of group and having conversations with them and visiting their families and, you know, that's, that's one part of the program. And then, so employing people to do other things, um, instead of looking for the things that I could be doing and looking for the needs because I would have felt overwhelmed, I went from the skills of the people that I, were, that I was employing. And so um, somebody had been working with blind people before. And, so, and there was a school for blind children. So mm. blind children living in a place with these landmines everywhere, and they can't read the signs on the street as well that say, don't go there, it's full of landmines, because they can't see. Yeah. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. So working with them and also with the how, how they integrate in their families, how that was traumatic for them because they heard the stuff, but they didn't see anything. Mm. You know, blind in a war, how do you live through that? You know, so... I visited that a couple of times, but I wasn't part of the intervention mm -hmm. over there. I helped my colleagues to do an intervention over there. I did street kids because I like street kids. I like a yeah. challenge. Street kids are the ones that tell you to fuck off, really. I, they, they, they don't want my intervention. So, uh, so it, the interesting part about the street kids, you know, somebody else did um, sexual illness, somebody else. So everybody... They went from their skills yeah. and found things to do. Um, and so street kids were really interesting to me because at the beginning of the war, the story that I heard was that these were kids that were either orphans or gypsies with their family move along or social services take them away or parents alcoholic or too poor to look after them. For one reason or another, they found themselves in a home for children. Yeah. with staff looking after them. And the beginning of the war, the military came into the place and said, fuck off, go back to the streets. Really? We're getting hold of the, we're taking hold of this building because it's nicely placed from a strategic perspective. Yeah. So the oldest of those kids who were 16, 17, 18, joined the army and started fighting, whether they're alive or not, I don't know. Um, the youngest t took off to the streets. Probably some of them didn't make it. Mm -hmm. um, the ones that I met after the war obviously had made it, but during that time, 
they learn how to survive in war situation. Mm -hmm. And so one who comes to mind was a little guy who was 13 years old when I met him, meaning he was eight when that started and he got thrown out from a home that was already uh, a problem kind of place. It's not a nice loving family he was living in. It's an institution and he was thrown out onto the street. He made it. He survived the five years of war by stealing, begging, transporting things, swapping, you know, swindling people along the way. I don't know how he did it, you know, but he made it. And now he's 13 and he keeps stealing and begging and doing all sorts of things. And I turn up and I say, look, you've got to reinsert yourself into society and be a productive member of the community. How did that go down? Guess what he told me? (laughs) Yeah, of course. Fuck off. Who was I to tell him that kind of Um, stuff? I don't say this from the perspective of that I'm implying that we need to get people to behave in a particular way. But we want to, I guess, more or less live in a society where generally people do the things that we expect them to do and not do things that are completely on the extremes and outrageous. So how do you work with someone without saying that what you're doing is wrong, but how do you work with their psyche, how do you work with their mind to help them navigate to what they might not even know they want to be doing, but they're still trapped in a place where they're just unconsciously reacting with their hormones, with their adrenaline, with their ways of surviving and that they don't trust anybody. Because you just came out of nowhere. Why would he ever trust you? He's been through five years of war. He doesn't trust anybody. (laughs) So how do you work with someone like that to... Trust is bad news for that kid. So he doesn't do trust. And, and that's probably from attachment from early childhood. What do I know? But anyway, um, yeah, so of course I didn't tell him to be a nice and productive member of society. What I did tell him is, how the hell do you see the future? Do you see a future? And his idea was um, trying to get into the best prison possible. The best prison? The best prison. Impossible. Yeah. So he was on a a path to crime. But the thing is, he was so small and so cute that nobody believed him. (laughs) Wait, is this this an isolated idea within him or was this an idea that other kids had as well? I don't know. Okay. He's the only one that I came across who had it, but that was really interesting. Um, Yeah, so his idea was, look at that. If he can get a life sentence in a comfortable prison, that's it, it's sorted. No more begging, yes. no more stealing. He'll fit right into the prison. Will he or will he not? I don't know that. Um, but that's his idea of it all. That, you know, he, that would be so given, comfortable. Given to where he came from, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look, with a bit of luck, there'll be a couch to sit on yeah. and certainly a bed to sleep in, mm. clean food, clean water, and a toilet. Mm. What would you want mm. from his perspective? So he kept doing all sorts of mischief. But nobody believed him. So he went to the cops and said, it was me who got into the German embassy and stole 3,000 marks. And they went, yeah, whatever. Here's a sandwich, get out. (laughs) And so, I don't know. What I did with him was learn from him, basically. Mm. I don't think I was... How old uh, are you at this point? How old old are you working with him? But not only him, all the kids there. Um, I don't know, under 30? Wow. Oh no, over 30? Not much, around 30. Yeah. It's like popping me there right now. I don't know. 
<laughs> so yeah, around 30, something like that, yeah. So um, yeah, I, I did a lot of learning from these kids. Okay, so then actually I wrote down a question for something like that and that actually brings me right into that question. And um, it's in alignment with the same question I asked you on the ferry when we had a discussion. And I asked you what are the top three things, but you answered with one, so it doesn't matter. I'll bring that one to the conversation now. And I said, what is the most debilitating thing uh, that people experience that stops them from living a healthy life. And your answer know. was trauma. Well, yeah. Past experiences. Yes. And so we go into the conversation you're talking about, because then, okay, so I mentioned trauma, or you the, mentioned trauma. Yes. And then there's a well, then maybe concept Maybe it's the glasses that sorry. I look at the word through, the world, you know, that once you start seeing trauma, you see it everywhere. Okay, talk about that then. Just have. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, fair enough. Okay, okay, okay. So your point there would be that you're seeing the behavior of individuals around you and how they act and behave, and what you're seeing is how they got to where they are. Yes. And that is the same story you just said before to that little boy. We learned from yeah. him because you're actually seeing, I see the way you are, I see who you are because of where you came from. Yes. You don't see and this so isolated individual right here now saying bad behavior and don't do this. Yes. And if I if I did anything with him. Um, I used to call it working on hypothesis. I know now a lot better how that works in the brain. Um, but the working on hypothesis was having a conversation with him and saying, yeah, going into jail and having that cushy plan. Wow, wouldn't it be an improvement on what your life's been in the last five years? Would there be another way of doing things? Can you see yourself working? If you did. If the prison was close to you and you couldn't go there, how else would you do it? You know, could you see yourself working? If you do, what kind of job would you do? And so, and we went from there and we built little scenarios in his imagination that he may or may not have followed. I have no idea because I didn't do much of a follow-up. Coming back on the trauma, it's one of the major reasons that I see um, that, that people are unwell because apart from the ones that are born genetically different you know um, fragile X syndrome autism mm -hmm. uh, down syndrome you name it mm -hmm. there's a there's a few there, there was an interesting little piece in bosnia about those guys okay um but other than that how else do you get unwell It doesn't come from the inside, from the genetics, then it comes from the outside. Isn't that logical? I don't know any other way, mm -hmm. really. So if it comes from the outside, it's from one experience or another that is too big to digest. That's my definition for trauma. I'm going to switch my telephone off because I to do that. That's okay. Um, too big to digest. Yes. And then there's your words, time, time collapse, time loop, essentially. That's a nice one, isn't it? Mm. Can I you do said, my little... You said that and I was like, oh, we got to talk about this because I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> you know what I mean well, when I'm saying I, that... And my interpretation, and mm. I would only regurgitate that, so I don't know what you're meaning, so I'd love you to extrapolate, but you just said no. So there's an, an experience that they cannot process. That's and exactly that, how it is. It is the unprocessing of that experience that traps them in a time loop for self-protection. 
and they're just not for self-protection, but it's the overwhelming nature of the current process and then they're trapped in that mental construct. They're trapped in whatever they're experiencing and they're just sitting there because going out of it somehow would encourage the processing, but could also encourage more pain. Yes. So I'm going to put it in my words. Then you'll find they're going to be a lot more simple than than yours. I got Please. them from John Connolly. I have to give him some thanks and some credit for that. Um, I really like the way that he puts everything into into stories and images. And so when something is too big and ugly to be processed um, and go into the, the processing, the, the, what's it called? The filing cabinet over there. You know, some, everything is recorded in our brain somehow and we can remember things. If I'm trying to look for what I had for breakfast or what color my socks on the 3rd of July 2015, I'm going to have to move some boxes around before I find that one. But when something has been so big, ugly and sticky that it got stuck halfway through the corridor on the way to the filing room, that stuff starts acting as the, the security airport thing. You know, when anything goes past it that smells, looks, feels similar, it's going to start rattling. And at that moment, there's a time collapse. And what I mean by a time collapse is that somebody, the classic example of the soldier who jumps behind the couch, you know, so there's firecrackers out there and he jumps behind the couch because his neurology perceived this as if it was happening right now mm-hmm. and reacted as it should when something completely lethal happens right now is get out the way, jump and go for protection, the couch. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by a time collapse. So he's living this as if it was the past experience relived mm-hmm. right now. Am I making sense? Yes, you are. If the experience was processed, the capacity for the reaction... It would, doesn't happen. ...would there's never no, happen, yeah. That's right. Yeah. There's no reaction at all. It's like, wow, that's firecrackers. And then it might be a memory. Oh, that's similar to guns. Yeah, I've heard guns before. I know what they sound like. They mm-hmm. sound a little bit similar. But the emotion is zero and the body reaction is zero. Yeah. Do you find that, um, so I often think that once you experience something, you can't unexperience it. So the capacity to remember it is always there, but what you change is your relationship to that experience. And so maybe to put into context of what you're talking about, you don't have that reaction anymore, even though you know what guns and the situation may have been. So um, individuals who you work with, the work is then to help them try and move that needle, to move their stuckness that's not being processed so yes. that you don't get rid of the experience because you can't get rid of experiences, but you change how they're relating to the experience itself. Absolutely. You change the way that the mind and the neurology is processing the incoming information. Yeah. So the incoming information being the firecrackers or the fireworks or anything that makes that kind of noise doesn't generate anything in the present moment because it's read appropriately as something that's happening 
now in 2022. It is not misread as something that's happening back then and that I am back then. Mm. I'm not. I'm here and I'm now. And so so the, here's the job is to actually undo that connection between the, the trigger and the response. Is that a very... Oh, sorry, continue. Is that a very present moment activity? Because you, you, yeah, uh, you don't actually know what you're going to say, what you're going to think or feel with that person until you sit there with them and they produce what they're going to produce and that tells you where you need to go. We don't even need to go into it most of the time. That's interesting. Yeah. Because most work, when people think of introspective work, they think, okay, so what I'm going to do I'm going to get very silent. I'm going to go into the depths of my psyche to fix it all. Yeah. And that's, you know. So that's what I would have done mm. 30 years ago. And that's what I was taught to do. Mm. And I did quite a lot of it. And it's painful for the person experiencing it. It's painful for the person hearing it and guiding the process. It's just painful all around. Yeah. And so I've been trying to do it faster and faster and faster. That's why I've learned EMDR. And so I did. But I found now recently in the last uh, 10 years, maybe, geez, I wish I would have learned that at school, yeah. that it can be done without pain. Isn't it something? Mm. And I really like that. Because the, the way that we are taught to do therapy is to go round and round and stir the shit until we know how bad it smells. I like the analogy. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we do. We go back into the experience. So now there's one person who's in the quicksand, they are drowning. And then what I've done is I've jumped in there with them. And so now it's the both of us being overwhelmed with an experience that's overwhelming and and difficult to process so now what i do is i stay outside the quicksand and i throw them some branches and i pull them towards me okay that's a bit different and there's a whole bunch of ways of doing that you know there's there's plenty little tricks that i've stolen from nlp these tricks that i've used from accelerated resolution or rapid resolution which are two different things um EMDR, but with some guided imagery rather than the uh, the classic uh, standard protocol, which is free association, um, accelerated, you know, fast forward, but still free association. So the whole idea is to, um, yeah, is to realize that I'm here and that stuff was back then and I'm not the same person as I was back then. Okay, just speak to me a little bit then about just what you just said, but also before to EMDR. So free association. Can you elaborate more on that? I don't know where to start. Um, <laughs> once I found the starting point, as you know, I'll just keep going. So uh, the reason why that came up to me so, is because you said EMDR, and then you said free association, and then you said the event is over there, I'm not there. Is that the aspect of free association to to, call, so, to let them be free now, away from what happened before? So free association means that you just let people's mind ramble on until it finds its own solution. Okay. So back in the days of good old Freud, that stuff took 10 years. Okay. 
Okay. I really don't know how people stuck with it for 10 years. They were just lying on the couch with Mr. Silence himself, or maybe a bit of scratching when he was taking his notes there. And uh, that was it. And they just sat there, looked at the ceiling and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked until the solution came to them. And it went through some crazy periods because the mind needs to purge some shit sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that used to take a long time. Um, and EMDR is the, the same thing, but condensed with bilateral stimulation, eye movements or buzzers, one in each hand or tapping on your own shoulders or whatever you do, it's, it's bilateral stimulation, just make things go real faster. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, we start, so instead of starting wherever, as psychoanalysis used to do, we start in a very, very sharp manner at the point of trauma. What is it that was too big for you that day in that experience when your granddaddy raped you or when the bombs did or whatever, you know? Or, or when the teacher told you to stand up in front of the class or when Priscilla didn't want to go to the prom with you. I don't know. No. Whatever event we start with that feels that it's still active, um, we start from that and we kind of delve into it a little bit because we want the a little bit like uh, like changing a file on a computer, you know, you've got to download it and then you change it. Mm-hmm. So the downloading of the information is you need to know from a sensory perspective what that stuff feels like, where it's at in the body. And once you are really deep and and physically aware and mindful of what the experience is like, then you start the process of changing it. But... All the therapist does is guiding the client through the bilateral stimulation and once in a while stopping and asking, where are you at right now? What's coming up for you? So just checking and then sending them on the path again and then stopping them again, like a train, on stopping at every station and then you check how it's going every station. And, and when the therapist feels that the client's really struggling, Instead of stopping, we accelerate. Like Past the train the train in the tunnel, deep, dark, and ugly, smelly tunnel, the last thing you want is to stop there. You just want to fast forward and just get to the other side real fast. Mm-hmm. And so when, when I'm saying free association is that we are letting the person's brain make the connections. And it might take a few minutes or half an hour or something, with sometimes physical sensations of pain, of wanting to vomit, of real bad nausea, dizziness, headaches. Uh, It can be really quite intense and other memories coming up in floods Um, and and plenty of the ugly ones as well. And, And that process works by itself until resolution, you know, and we are looking at uh, I don't know, it uh, depends what trauma and depends what person, um, but we're looking at res- resolution of that particular trauma in that particular session, you know, yeah. um, and they're finding their own solution. So it might be the same thing, you know, I'm remembering, I don't know, my father was never there when I was a kid, 
and it was horrible when I was a kid and I'm still feeling very um, uh, overwhelmed when my partner goes away for the weekend you know um, so that might be the starting point and so how overwhelmed do I feel where do I feel it in my body what's the is it an angry or a sad or what well, is detailed emotion and then go through the process and come out the other end and go yeah my father actually was very busy he might have had things to do as well it probably wasn't anything about me it's not that I was a bad kid it's not that he didn't like me if anything maybe he didn't like my mother but that had nothing to do with me so these realizations come to people and they also start remembering the nice times with daddy and you know so and then yeah my partner's gonna go away next weekend I thought that would be uh, something that I'd find difficult to deal with. That's why I brought this to the session. But actually, I'll be fine. You know, and and so these things, the person goes through that kind of purging and then find the light at the other end by them by themselves. Their own mind does it. Now, now I'm finding that to get that emotion separated from the memory, I can go way faster. Um, and with l less pain and no pain at all. You're referring know. to new techniques and methodologies that you've learned over time? Yes, I'm referring to little tricks yeah. that I've learned. So it kind of depends. I, mean, I think I trust my intuition a lot uh, when I'm at work and it kind of depends um, who I'm with and what kind of event we're talking about and what kind of resources internal resources they've got to lean mm -hmm. on um but you know i, I do things like get, getting uh, so working a lot with imagery with voluntary imagery placement so you take that memory and you say you know and and you just tweak it you know in that war let's have fireworks and you know, and in and if you had to run for your life, well, make it to running a marathon or whatever it might be. You know, change the movie. You're the movie director. You sit mm -hmm. in your movie director's chair, a pina colada in one hand with a little uh, parasol there, and in the other hand, you've got the clicking to boss everyone around, because that's what movie directors do. They sit in real comfortable chairs and boss everyone around. So that movie, that that event doesn't exist. It only exists in the present moment as a movie from something that might have happened in the past. Mm -hmm. I know that things change when we remember something, we don't remember what happened. We remember yeah. the last time we remembered it. Yeah. And the more we remember something, the more we change it. And with traumatic material, it gets changed. And sometimes it gets changed for the worst. So. I'm just going all over the place here, but it doesn't matter, does it? No, but so, I, I'll continue. So getting, getting the knowledge that this is a movie over there and being able to change it, again with bilateral stimulation just for a minute. Um, so, you know, getting some circus music on it or some opera music or whatever you want music and changing the makeup of the actors, the, the costumes, uh, even changing the actors, after all, uh, a movie director can hire and fire whoever he wants. Um, and so we can have a few versions of the movie, but usually just one is sufficient. So 
here we're getting a little bit more directive when we do that kind of intervention. You know, I'm not letting the person go through their shit for ages and ages until they find a solution. I'm offering a solution, be a movie director, and then let it go to their imagination, but it's always going to be, I'm insisting that I want a good movie, yeah. one that's going to be pleasant, not one that's going to rattle you. And then once we have those two versions, the mind always chooses to remember the new fun, funny one. And, and then because the mind can compare, they both become, have the same kind of um, valence. What's the word for that? Valence? Uh, value. value. They have the same value inside the mind. So somehow, instead of being the truth of what's happened and it's still scary, it becomes, here's a version of what could have happened, nice movie, and here's an ugly version of it. But they both are perceived as movies that are playing in the present mind, but n none of the emotion is attached to it. None of the emotion is attached to it. That's correct. None of the emotions attached to either of them. Because my initial thing I would have said, and I remember you saying to this to me the first time, is that there, I, you said this, and this is very fascinating when you said that we don't remember, this is paraphrasing, we don't remember things as they are, but we remember them as the last time we remembered them. Yes. And every time we remember them, we're rechanging the memory to that memory. So Correct. actually what we remember from the past is just evolving based on the present moment. Correct. So to your point here, it's like you're creating a new variation of the story to replace the old variation. But we're not we're replacing, we're putting the old story in its place. Okay. It is a movie of the mind. Yeah. You know, I'm talking movie because most people remember things from a visual perspective. Yes. Some of them don't. It doesn't matter. We can do it with smells. We can do it with physical sensation. It really doesn't matter. New movie to an old sensation. Expand. So I'm just trying to, to really sh shave it all down. So new movie, new variation of how things could have happened to a old sensation. Sensation's gone. Sensation's gone. And that's released with the introduction so the, of the new movie. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because instead of being perceived by the mind as something that's happening in the present, the time collapse, then it's perceived by the mind as another version of that movie. Right. Understand. It's really that simple. It puts the thing in its place. Another really, really good uh, thing that I do quite often for one moment things it's so fast, it's not even funny. I've done it a few times and I stuck and had conversation with the people for, I don't know, an hour or something to kind of uh, make it look like, you know, they're paying me for an hour's work. But the actual work was 10 minutes, if that. Yeah. You know, so it's getting... So let's say... Um, Let's say when I was in a war, I had to kill somebody and then I looked at their empty eyes and that's been haunting me ever since the last 30 years. And so what happens next is I get into a time machine, my present self goes back into the past and has a conversation with my past self that has just killed somebody. And 
trauma here, it can be just before when I was terrified that something ugly was going to happen, it was me or him, just during the moment where I was killing somebody and fighting with him, or just after, with the whole meaning of the whole thing dawned on me. Mm-hmm. So I don't know which of the three places I was stuck in that traumatic moment, um, or maybe it was the three at once, I really don't know. So my present self gets into a time machine of any description is not important and gets over there to have a conversation with my past self and say, look, at the moment, I get it, you're stuck. Stuck means you're so overwhelmed by this shit that's happened right now that you can't have an idea and a vision for the future. So look with me and look at the future and look and then look at events that bring joy or pride into the future and realize that that is guaranteed for you. How do I know it's guaranteed? Because it's already happened. And so then looking at the past self and seeing the, the face expression change, the skin tone change, the body posture change, that moment of the therapy when the client is seeing their past self change um, is the moment when the shoulders drop and they go, it's no longer painful. And then I get them back in the time machine to come back right here. And then so, you know, have a little conversation about what you were experiencing. And, um, and now, once we've had that little conversation about the present experience or the or the past, sorry, the past experience in the last five minutes, then we look back at the memory and see how active it still is. Mm-hmm. And that's where people laugh or cry or just realize that. What have I been doing this whole time? What? I don't really care. It's like an old black and white movie. Yeah. Uh, it's not me. You know, look at me. <laughs> I'm, I'm not the age that I was back then. There's something that I have found in my own personal experience, and I don't know if this arose intuitively over time, or this came about just from the things I was paying attention to that gave me the idea to do this, but it's something I do almost with all my discomforting or painful experiences. I always go back in time and speak to myself through it. I return, because I always understand to some degree or another, I just don't understand what was going on at the time. And I behaved in such a way that helped me survive through that event. That's right. As time has gone on now, I can walk back to that event and walk myself through it. Literally grab my hand and I talk to myself like I'm talking to him, who's me, and talk him through. It's not the same guy. Yeah, you give that person a new meaning to the same event because he's emotionally showing up now because whatever's occurred in my present circumstance now has brought him back to life. And he's showing up in the present moment to somehow guard me from what I think is happening still to me. And so as I feel the emotion in the present moment, I'm like, I'm clutching up, I'm getting tense, I'm getting anxious. And so I'm getting, the neurology is reacting right now. The neurology is, yeah, the physiology in my body yes. is activating right now as if that event's happening. So what I know in that moment is that that old argon, whoever he is, wherever the event is, 15, 16, 20, 22, whatever it might be, or even younger, He's here. I may have this giant body now, that's fine, but my self-perception is actually that little boy again in the present moment. And I'm like, okay, I see what's going on. 
there's an even faster way through that one. So look at your hands. How old are they? Much older than they used to be. That's right. So, uh, and I, I use that one for people who dissociate and go into real early childhood kind of experiences and they start talking in a baby voice yeah. and they start to get overwhelmed by anything that's happening in the present, but they start feeling like they're a little young child. Yeah. And that's, you know, I do all sorts of crazy things in therapy. So once in a while, I'm talking with somebody and all of a sudden I say, look at your hands, how old are they? And they go, what, you're 50? Oh, <laughs> yeah. and then they are right back here. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's that's really a, a real fast way of bringing the whole neurology back to right now. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't undo it. It just brings the neurology right back to right now for this moment, but it doesn't undo the, the trauma, which is liable to come back tomorrow or next week. So this that's why we need to go and undo the knot in the, in the background. Okay. So maybe this naturally brings us to another part of the conversation. And I asked you actually healing. I didn't ask you to, so your general statement was, it depends what it looks like for everybody. But I think what I was speaking more to was what, maybe myth is the right word to use here, but what or misconception do people have of healing? Because I feel that if, and I'm, uh, uh, you know, as I grew up, I realized a lot of what I understood about the world was a reflection of what the world was and what I perceived from it. And I just carried all that stuff with me as we all do. And I had a predetermined idea of what healing was. And that because of my own experiences of my past and my desire, just like any human being, to get away from them, healing always represented an idea within me as if like that painful memory is just by standard a painful memory. And when one day I don't think about it, that's when I'll be healed. And you know, as time goes on, you realize that is not even remotely the truth. That's not how it works. So then what I want to present to you and ask you, how would you explain it or how would you define it to help people understand what does actually healing look like? Not in the sense of how do you live a happy life, but how do you redefine what the healthy relationship to your experiences are? Wow. (laughs) 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 That's way more than what I've got. (laughs) to to me i don't know healing is an ongoing continuing process Uh, as i'm speaking right now my body is healing healing and maintenance is the stuff that the body does and mind does on a daily basis you know i eat stuff that's not so good for me so my body processes that heals it i smoke a cigarette that's what my body processes as well I've got shitty thoughts or the neighbor tells me some kind of shitty something and that grates me a little bit. My mind, you know, I'll be sleeping and dreaming about it or imagining that I hose her cat down when he comes into my garden and that'll make me happy. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know what, I'm producing yeah. feel good um, um, chemistry in my body and uh, and that makes me laugh and I also decide that I don't care whatever it is that works for me on that day is is what's going to uh, work for me but uh, everybody's got their own version of healing some people want a happy marriage some people want just to be there for the kids some people want to rush and have a career other people want to take it easy 
I don't know what it represents for anyone. So you're gonna have to ask everybody. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's where I'm. So, um, um, for my clients, it's the day when they fire me. You mm. know, and I have them regularly come into my office and say, "Hey, guess what? I don't want to see you no more. I'm sure you're gonna be happy about this." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I am. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably the, one of the number one places where that's the most welcomed yeah. thing to hear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that, but that's established from the beginning. You know, some people I see more than once. Some people I see just the once. Some people I see for a few years. You know, it depends what's happening there, um, and what's their desires. And and how far away the the goal is. So anyway, yeah. But it's always established from the beginning. One day you're gonna fire me, right? And I'm looking forward to that day. And often during, if if we're going for a long time, um, often I ask, so where are we on that road? You know, um, are we getting close to the end? Are we just started? Are we somewhere in the middle? Just keep me posted. Uh, you know that yeah. I know how much more we got to to do and how much energy I need to go master and how many tricks I need to learn. So like in my experience with, with people, if I make it very specific to asking to, towards healing and as opposed to broadening to everywhere else because the concept I'm about to explain goes to everything else, but we'll keep it towards this, is a lot of what troubles them is what they already think it's supposed to be like. And when you think what something's supposed to be like before you arrive, you arriving in a sense of limitation. <laughs> but it's the limitation that causes and perpetuates that state you're in. So in my language, that's called fighting reality. Fighting reality. Yes. So to the aircon point. Same with the aircon, same with yeah. the temperature. Yes, yeah, getting hot here, but you know, we're gradually getting hotter. When I came in the room, all of a sudden it was cold. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, when I go to tropical places, I don't use aircon, but that's what it is. Fighting reality is having a vision of how it should be. Expectation is the mother of all disappointments, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But that's the thing is that I, even when somebody talks and speaks and I'm sitting there and we're doing some work together, immediately in the way they speak, they're revealing all their expectations. You can tell by the way they're structuring their language, they're talking about how they arrived here, how they perceive yesterday, how they perceive tomorrow, and they're talking about how their mental frame of mind is constantly carrying their physical body through their life. And by that conversation, I can immediately tell what this person's idea, not what the physical image is, but what idea conceptualization they have in their mind of what healing is supposed to look like. Mm. But it's what they think it's supposed to look like that stops them from feeling healed now. Well, I think we're on the same page. It's all yeah. about here and now. It's all about mindfulness. And the, the kind of therapy that I do, and I'm, I've recently learned that it's called experiential therapy. It's about experiencing things. Mm. But Mr. Carl Gustav Jung said that a couple of, when was it? I was going to say a couple of centuries ago, but maybe not that much. I don't know what his time maybe was like, but one it's, and it's a bit Freudish. Yeah. So turn of the 1800s to the 1900s, thereabouts. Um, and so one of the things, the very clever things that he said was, 
people don't come to therapy for ideas. They come to therapy to have an experience. And I think that's true. They, they come to therapy to be with somebody who understands them, to be with somebody who, who's on their side, to be with somebody who's going to get them to feel better, mm. you know, and feel better in the session. So, therefore, we should provide them with positive and enjoyable experiences rather than stirring all sorts of ugliness. Mm. It, oh, interesting one that I'd left out that maybe would be interesting about the Bosnia experience was um, that there was also... Uh, home, a home, a hospital, a school, I don't really know, uh, for people with intellectual disability. So Ooh, they used to call it a school. They're retired. Okay, cool. You know? Yeah. So people who are mentally retired yeah. for whatever reason, um, but who are, who live in that facility. And so before the war, you know, we're talking Eastern Europe here to a degree, not complete Russia, you know, or Siberia, but it's still kind of Eastern Europe a little bit. And so, and we're talking many years ago. Um, so it was, it's an okay place to institutionalize people. It's not a problem at all. So everybody gets institu institutionalized if they can't fit into a normal school, so off they yeah. go. And that's called a school, let alone that, you know, people are in their 50s or 60s, but it's still, they're still children and it's still a school. So I don't know how much staff they had before the war, but when the war started, the staff did what I would have done if it was me, they went away. They went to another country <laughs> or to another place. And so, um, or they took up arms, or I don't know what happened. But anyway, for the about 400 clients, I want to call them clients, I can't call them children. They were adults, and I certainly can't call them patients, or I don't know. Um, anyway, for these people, there was about 400 of them. During the war remained, guess how many staff? Five. For 400? Yes. Wow. So that's more than 100 uh, no, it's a bit less than a hundred. Do you see yeah. how bad the math is? <laughs> <laughs> but I think at that point, when you've got 80 or 110, that's really irrelevant. <laughs> it's really irrelevant at that point. You're just overwhelmed. <laughs> that's exactly right, yeah. And so, and they organized themselves to, you know, uh, plant a veggie garden and um, chop down the trees for firewood and whatever, because there was no government resources either, of course, because the government was all upside down in the middle of a war as it is. So these things just, um, you know, and, and no no supply chains of anything to them. So here we go. Can you imagine the level of anxiety of people who are experiencing scarcity, hunger, cold, uh, the absence of all their familiar staff, um, and the experience of war as well, because that doesn't stop at the gate. The, you know, the bombs carry on falling. The level of anxiety was through the roof. <laughs> and at some stage, Red Cross had dumped a parcel of clothes to them, and all the clothes were pink tracksuit pants and hoodies. 
So here's 400 people of all ages and physical descriptions hanging around <laughs> in pink things. Uh, they had no socks or one sock or broken shoes or whatever. That, yeah, but, but they had these they had these clothes, and just surviving that was an amazing thing in itself, mm. you know. And and and, um, and they made it. Most of them made it. Isn't it something? So when us nice little French people from Handicap International with our interpreters turned up and said, "How is it that we can help you? Let's have a meeting." and talk about, we were, uh, our idea as a team was we're going to help the staff. There's now many more staff, of course, and but so those five that have stayed and plus some who want to participate, our idea was we're going to help them and we're going to help them heal from their difficult times. So we turn up to the meeting and they say, pull up your sleeves and work with the clients. We're fine, thank you. <laughs> so, so you that's were there, what you were we there did. for the staff itself? Sorry? Are you saying that you were there for the staff itself? Yeah, we were there for, in, in my, in our crazy thinking, we were there to help the staff yeah. to, to recover from their trauma. But what they told us is, no, thank you. Help us work with those people who've gone 20, 20 steps backwards through, through during those five years. So that's what we did. Everyone to our own strengths, you know. I like to do art, so I brought in crayons and things and I did an art class. Somebody else was a sport teacher, so I did a sport class. We called it a class, but we know we, we were there to help those guys alleviate anxiety, trauma, whatever it is, but through different medium. And so that was the funny story. <laughs> <laughs> Get to work, pull up your sleeves and get to work was the message. Uh, you know, when you, I mean, look, I didn't, I'm from Albania, so I didn't go through the war myself personally because we came here before it all popped off. Dad was very fortunate. He was an undercover police officer, so he knew what was going on and he just got out of there before it all just turned to shit. As so, I would have done as well. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, the rest of my friends who are in New Zealand, they experienced the moving from their homes, their families, being split up, not knowing who's going where, what's happening, just sleep, sleeping at other people's houses, it's all back and forth, and losing family members, seeing family members gone, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. um, In a situation like that, you do not show up there. And an example I can give is like, you know, if you're in New Zealand and McDonald's gives you a bad order, you can send an email and someone will reply to you. If you're in a country like that, <laughs> no, 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 it doesn't exist. <laughs> so when you get to the ground level, th there is no like structuralization of how things are supposed to be. You just That's roll up right. your sleeves and you just, you're a human being. And this is what disorder looks like. This is what life is really until we order it with our minds. Like That's this right. is really what it looks like. And then it's just Life like, is such a wild process yeah. that is completely untamed and unfathomable, however much we try to think about it and philosophize about it. You know, I'm just going to drop you right there. I think that right there is one of the, for my personal belief, is one of the cornerstones to the suffering people have about where they fit and what they're doing with their life. Because the mind organizes people's lives. And when you're trying to organize a biological process, it cannot be done with your imagination. <laughs> and the suffering people have and I would say like, you know, the general suffering about anxiety, depression, it's 
that the self-image and then how you're actually showing up in the present moment do not relate. And you're in this constant dance and conflict in this place of so self-consciousness that you debilitate and you stop. That's right. And you don't move anywhere. So people have the image of how it should be, yeah. how my marriage should be, or how my children should be, or how how I should be even, yeah. you know, how I should be... Um, I, I should be at ease with this process and not go through all the shy stuff because there's a microphone in my face or there'll be a recording of it all. Of course, um, that's the image of how I should be and, and when I'm shy. So then it kind of um, can, the risk is that it becomes even worse because not only is it uncomfortable as a setting, but then if I've got the self-judgment that goes on top of that, um, then I'm starting... You know, so when when um, three levels of, of reading uh, of anxiety, do you want that one? So um, for a zebra, when the lion comes along, fear switches on for the purpose of getting the legs super strong and the mind super motivated to run. Lion goes away or eats another zebra, Thing switches off, end of story. Yeah. For people, not so much. Because there's one level that we've evolved a lot of thinking where we can remember and plan so we can think about the past and think about the future. You're referring to the prefrontal cortex, the neocortex, in terms of the brain? Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Okay, sure. Okay. <laughs> I thought they were going to dance with that. We're going to go there, but it's okay, continue. We, we could go into biology, but here I'm into zebras. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Let's go. Um, the other level of the mind, so I'm not saying brain, I'm saying mind at this yeah. point. And the other level, so one, one has all this super evolved and intelligent way of thinking, and the other one is really just like a zebra. Yeah. And so this is the one that runs the biology. So up here, I can be remembering something or thinking about the future, um, but the bottom one, the the unconscious mind and the primitive mind, will every single time read that as present tense yes, because it, it doesn't have access to time. Mm -hmm. So, and they don't speak the same language at all. So yeah. here we are. First level of of the anxiety is the fear in the absence of a predator. The fear and the absence of a predator. In the absence of oh, a predator. In the absence of a predator. So I'm thinking about something that happened back then or that might happen later on. I'm thinking it in my imagination. My absent. neurology is reading it as present. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it doesn't know that this stuff doesn't exist. Have you ever been to the movie and been scared or sure. sad? And did you not know it was a movie? Mm. So up here you knew it was a movie, but the tear ducts didn't know that. Mm. And the gut didn't know that. So that, that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying these two different languages. So that doesn't happen to animals, you know. Penguins have never been scared about the thought of a shark. They just react to the shark when they're yeah. yeah. Swim faster. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so... And if they can't see the shark anymore, the shark's not there. Yeah. Exactly. If it if it's not here right now, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, 
So that's the first level, is that our neurology can react to things that are not present. And the, the second part of it is that it can get, it can misread the defense mechanism as a threat in itself, meaning as a predator. So um, I'm starting to get sweaty palms about thinking that I'm going to speak in public next week. I think about it, I get sweaty palms and butterflies in my tummy and funny jittery legs. And then I'm thinking to myself, shit, I must be going crazy or I'm having a heart attack or what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my tummy? Maybe I'm going to develop an ulcer. And so all that stuff gets read as a threat as well. So up there it gets read as a worry. Oh shit, these things in my body are happening. What's going on with me? And the neurology reads that worry as there's a predator. So not only there was one lion, but now we're looking at a whole bunch of lions. And what does the neurology do about that? Produce more of the defense, of course, which amplifies the crazy breathing, the crazy heartbeat, the feelings in the tummy and the legs and the sweaty palms and all the rest of it. So that's the second level of anxiety. The third one is all the crazy questions that go on. And that comes from the need to gather information. The need to? Gather information. information. A, a zebra knows what a lion is. He's got the lesson real early in his life. If he made it to adulthood, he's already outran a few yeah. slow zebras, actually. Um, and so he doesn't need to learn anything about the lion. But, um, you know, if we're at a party and somebody comes to us and says, hey, these guys over there, they're looking at doing you a mischief. The first thing we say is, what, who are they? How many are they? Are they strong? What do they want? And so these all, all are the questions that the mind asks when it doesn't have enough information to know what to do with this. Mm -hmm. So that's the third level of anxiety, the crazy thinking, the crazy feelings. It's reacting as if there was a predator that it doesn't know anything about. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. The first two are quite related to biology. Yes. And then the third one is, yes, induced by the biology, but you're actually in your mental sphere at this point. You're yes. just You're trying to find what could be said neurological information to sedate yourself. Yes. As, you know, Not yeah, to sedate yourself, yeah. maybe To return to back to homeostasis, to return back to normal, to return back to a sense of safety. To devise an appropriate reaction to that threat. Okay. Because at that point, the body says you gotta run or you gotta fight. You know, when all the energy goes to the legs and people are white in the face, we know that the energy and the blood is going down to the legs. But the fight response is when they become all red in the face, and okay. and then if, from a physiological perspective, it's yeah. about biting yeah. and clawing. You know. And so that's how we differentiate those reactions, the fight and flight. Yeah, I find that uh, it's interesting how you're explaining that because um, when I'm with people, they, um, there's always an emotion someone's trying not to feel. When, when someone thinks they have a problem, mm -hmm. there's always something they're trying not to feel. So your shame, your guilt, your fear, your anger, your sadness, these are all your emotions, they're who you are. Not the essence of who you are, but they're part of your experience. That's right. Wrong. They're the there's experience. Nothing, yeah, they're not, there's nothing wrong with them in and of themselves. So when someone shows up and says, 
and they, to your example, the third stage, and they dump a lot of psychological jargon, all I know immediately is what you're trying not to feel because you're trying to run from something and you're trying to find a explanation, you're searching for information that can rationalize the situation you're in. So the more they ramp up their sense of mental control in the situation, the more I'm just like, okay, what is this guy not trying to feel sadness? Like, is he angry and he, just, he thinks he's not supposed to be an angry person, so therefore he's trying to somehow stout his anger away? What's going on? And then I find that Let's very interesting. Let's put a lid on it and keep it tightly shut. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. That's a what big a one for cool people. strategy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I would actually argue that that's a, been, a, a been one in my life, especially. Um, very angry. Too. We've all done yeah, it. Because, you know why? Because we were taught. 100%, yes. Angry people are not lovable people. And angry people are not civil people. They're not rational people. They're not deserving people. They're not all these things. Yet anger is the precise uh, yeah. biological response to protect you from whatever is going on. That's right. It may not be the underlying uh, so emotion. Let's, let's refine this. It's the biological and emotional response to perceived threat. Yes. So there's emotional part. Because there's something else going on. The anger is the response. The emotional response. Something else going on in the outside or something else going on in the inside because anger can be triggered by memories as well. Yes. So, okay, let's dance. So, for example, I lifted a lot of weights in the gym when I was in between 17 and 26. Two hours a day, six days a week, for eight years straight. And I did it out of pure anger and rage and self-suffering. So the, the feeling of hurting is what drove the whole process. Mm. So now as I've gotten older, I'm not as angry anymore, so I can't lift weights for shit because I didn't have the same emotional motivating factor. The story I run within myself is not present when I'm there anymore because it's dissolved over time. And so I don't want to lift the weights the same way. I don't have the same motivating factor. I don't live within the same illusion within myself, you can say. But all that anger over time, the more it's sort of quietened and dissipated, revealed that I was just very, very sad. There was a sadness for the events of my life. There was a sadness for the things I had experienced. There was a sadness for the relationship I had to my parents. Or there was a sadness for whatever. But that sadness was, to some degree, unbearable. And the anger was the response to barricade the system from having to deal with whatever was overwhelming. And so then I went out into the world to conquer it, to push it around, to, to mold it in such a way to keep myself safe. Right? The anger was the outward projection to protect the inner whatever. So that's why anger, yeah, your words are a bit much different and speak more to the biology and they're very accurate. Where anger is the emotional response. But I was speaking to as well that there's something else always going on. Because if anger is never a response, if there's not something going on. Because you, why would the body get angry? Why would there be an emotional response if there's not a perceived issue? That's right. So perceived is the operational word on this one. So it yeah. doesn't mean that there's a real threat. It means that something has been stuck in that filing corridor there. Yeah. Something stuck there and then that gets reactivated every time something similar goes past. Mm. And then to your point, your level two of anxiety is the person's having the angry response and they're going, oh no, no, don't be an angry person. No, I was talking about anxiety, I wasn't talking about anger. I was anger. just using it just like to, to oh, compare yes. the stages because someone's having a reaction their reaction or their emotional response is the appropriate response to whatever perceived threat they have. And then they go, oh, but being an angry person is not the right kind of person to be. And then they suppress their anger. 
Yes. And that will then cause a tremendous amount of issues later down the line. Because their anger is their defense to whatever they're perceiving as going on. So the anger is completely justified in being there. This is these two um, categories of people that are quite sometimes tricky to get started in therapy. One is grief, you know. Um, do, do you want to, you know, get if if you ask anybody who's got anxiety, if if I could get into your mind with a pair of tweezers and take the anxiety out, would you like that done? They go, yeah, of course, do it now. If you ask somebody grieving, some people will say, well, no, because my suffering is a measure of the love I had for my dog, my cat, my grandmother. And they don't quite want to get rid of it. Not just yet. Give me another 26 years. And anger is also one of those that feels justified. If I was to go into your mind with a pair of tweezers and take it out, no, don't do that. I, it would mean that I'm forgiving that bastard who did this to me. You know, so sometimes it's really hard to get people started on that one, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to get them motivated to, to change. Um, but the, the way of looking at, at it is the, um, the hostage negotiator kind of a way, you know. You don't want him to be preoccupied, the hostage negotiator or the eye surgeon who's going to do my eyes. I don't want him to be angry or preoccupied in any kind of way um, because I want him to be able to access his rational mind. So I'm talking about that guy and then back to the client. You, utilizing your rational mind might be the way that you go about this and you might be more efficient in getting revenge as well. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but that would mean the anger is still there, so we're in a catch. Mm. So, you know, going uh, the idea I said, I walk myself through things. Um, when the anger arises, I go, oh, cool. Yeah, I'd be angry too if X, Y, Z happened. I'd be angry as well. So I'm speaking to him because I'm walking him through it. Because in so, his anger, he can't understand. He just thinks that I've been hurt by this person or someone said that or this person deserves to get what I'm about to give them. And so I go back and talk to him and I'm like, yeah, the anger, you deserve to, like, if I felt the way you felt, the anger is, is good, it's fine. But that's not what's going on. You're angry, you know, that's your defense, but what else is going on? Like, what do you, so what, what you're do doing you, there is separating yourself from the anger and looking at it as you person, personifying it mm-hmm. and deciding it's not you just like that. And that's, get, that's what's getting done here. Yeah, but I know that there's something else going on, which is the threat. And that's the, the emotion of, well, vulnerability is not an emotion, but the state of vulnerability and whatever emotion it is that you don't want to be in, which is the sadness, there's the shame, whatever it might be. But that's a, because you know, with those emotions, I feel like their mirror is inwards. So you're talking yes. about shame, the mirror is inwards. And because you can't deal with the, 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 the looking glass on yourself, anger can be a yeah. response to, to shift the glass somewhere else. And so, you know, you could be in a scenario or situation where shame arises in an interaction with someone and then immediately anger arises as well because of the self-protection of not wanting to feel the way that you do or thinking that actually the way they've made me feel is not okay. And that's the response. Mm. Interesting way of looking at it, eh? When you were talking about the the mirror and the self-reflection, 
I'm thinking, that's not healthy. Self-reflection and, and thinking and looking on the inside is, I don't know, I'm lost for words there for a minute. Um, you know, somebody who's really, really happy, um, me when I'm doing snowboarding, how much self-reflection am I doing? Pretty much zero. Yeah. Ask the dog how much he's looking in the mirror. None at all. So the, the state of being in the present and celebrating the present, which is the state of happiness in my mind, um, well, that's got zero to do with introspection. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of a sick thing that people do. Everybody, yeah. Mm -hmm. Everybody does. It, it happens naturally out of the capacity of imagination. I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Where does that come from? It's probably some kind of um, brainwashing that we get from very early on. Ooh. What were you it's trying to achieve when you did that to your sister? wasn't trying to achieve anything. Let me think, because I've got to answer that question. That's my mummy, and if she don't love me, she won't cook me no dinner. All right, fair enough. You've introduced an idea to a child at that point. Yeah. Yeah, you've introduced the idea. And, and these on. things start before we're old enough to scratch an itch. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the conditional love. Yeah. You know, so... Again, animals, they get growled at when they come too close, you know, the, the mummy cat is going to hiss at her little kittens when they suck her titties and she's not in the mood, you know. Uh, everybody gets put in their place in the whole um, animal kingdom. But when was it that, you know, the little baby bird got told by by his mummy that he was a bad bird. You know, never. Bad boy. Good girl. Nobody ever in, in the animal kingdom doesn't happen. But for babies in humans, it happens as soon as they're born. Mm -hmm. As soon as we are born, should I say. It happens all the time. And so, and, and very soon, children understand that uh, that frowny face there might mean that I'm going to die because I can't look mm -hmm. after myself. And if my carer and food bringer doesn't like me, I'm going to die. So we're introducing life threat into the mind of a baby. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. I've done yeah. it to my kids. I'd do it all all differently now if I was going to do it again, but hell, I'm not having any more babies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too old for that shit. <laughs> I understand that for sure. A bit of philosophy on that from my perspective. Um, if you're, okay, so we're animals, so let's say not the exact same biology system, but more or less completely identical biology system as other animals around us, but when a bear has a pair of cubs, there is no way to be, you're just a bear. That's and right. bears do what bears do. Mother doesn't walk around, completely to your point, telling them how to be like bears. No, no, we kill here, we sleep there, in a story. 
That's right. And but, when she's angry, she's angry. And she's angry. She she's not thinking they're like, I'm a bad mother. No, no. <laughs> she's not thinking I'm a bad mother. No, no. Yes. She's just whooping ass. Do I need an anger management class? Do I need to hire the services yeah. of another beer to go have yeah. beer conversations with weekly? No, no. <laughs> you know, she's just, she's angry. She says, I don't like that. She brushes somebody's head off their body and that's the end of that. And then she goes back to eating her berries. Yeah. Um, and there's this fascinating thing where the human being has developed the capacity to think. The development of the brain has then allowed them and given them the capacity to think. So now they can imagine life the way it's That's not. right. And so mm-hmm. when a child's born into the world, but the system which they're born into is a biological system which deals with now, but you're presenting an idea of, oh no, forget now, it should be like this, that starts to create that split between how you should be and how you are. And that's then right. that's where that shows up like, I'm a good person, I'm a bad person. To even to even put that into a sentence means that you should have a preconceived idea of how it should have been, as opposed to just how you've shown up. That's and so right. there's this philosophy, and then I think that also ties in, you said it quite well in your uh, reply to me, of shame and guilt. And you said, if there was a moral, what were your words? Um, yeah, read them, because I forgot them already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. When I so just... I said, shame and guilt, and you're like, again, a time collapse. The meaning that the mind gives in the present, uh, I don't know what you wrote here, to quench, the, what happened in the past, and that they may have had some moral connotation. That's right. And that's that society part where if there's a moral connotation to the situation, it that then creates the perception that produces the shame. Or yes. it creates that situation. Because almost if there's no moral connotation, if there's no morality to it at all, you can't have the shame because anything goes, right? That's right. That's very interesting. That's right. How that mechanism and so we're the only people who have a Bible or a moral code of any kind. Yeah. You know, do penguins have one of them? Probably not. Jellyfish? I don't think so. Trees? Mm, not happening. So we're the only species who have decided to have a moral code to guide our behaviors. And we're the only ones who do the whole thing completely upside down. I don't think that zebras rape their children or steal somebody else's stuff, they don't have stuff, you know. Oh, maybe birds steal each other's stuff. Nest uh, twigs. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, twigs. And they certainly commit a whole bunch of adultery and they get all pissed off about it. But that's that's really funny. And they think it's, I don't know what they think actually. They probably think tweet tweet (laughs) or something like that. I feel that, I feel that I wouldn't, necessarily in any way say that shame and guilt have no place. I think that shame and guilt are a biological function to maintain the integrity of the community. Because... It doesn't work. It just makes people angry. It does, but at the same time, if there's no shame and guilt, everybody does anything they want at any given moment at any time. And if you want to set up a society that has order... I have to disagree with you. You think so? Very, very strongly. Yeah, shame and guilt are disagreeable emotions that just produce more shit. If you want to look for shame and guilt, go to prison. Plenty of people so very feeling ashamed of what they've done and very guilty of, about it and and also super angry. What happens as soon as they get out, do it again. Because they feel there's an imbalance in the way that they've been punished and there's no reparation there. So, yeah, nah. Yeah, nah. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that uh, there's an imbalance for how they've been 
punished, as in like the punishment was more severe than the crime? The self-punishment is sufficient. Oh, the self-punishment is sufficient. So as a, as a little child, when, you know, I don't know what, Johnny pushed his sister because she wanted to take his lollies or something, and then she hurts herself, he goes, oh shit, are you okay? Mommy comes in and tells him how much of a bad boy he is and he won't be able to play outside with his mates or he'll get his ball or his whatever it is, tablet taken off him. You know, that's way too much. He didn't need that. What he had already was the realization of a mistake and the desire to fix it. Mm -hmm. That's enough. And the more we perpetuate that cycle of shame and guilt, the more we create people who are going to be super ready to go to jail when their turn comes because they'll do sufficient, sufficient mischief that is going to be dangerous to others, and so we'll want to remove them from society. Um, and, and then they'll feel it's a bit of an unjust punishment, and they'll feel angry about it and resentful, and they'll go get out of there and do something else, because they're still horribly angry. Mm. See? I didn't swear. <laughs> <laughs> Did you notice? Yeah. Prisons are full of five-year-old, very sad little boys. That's a quote that I heard somewhere. I don't know where. But that's what it is. Real angry bastards are just little sad boys. Yeah, I mean, going back to that principle of anger is the emotional reaction to something else. And so... Perceived threat. Yeah, like, you know, I, I, when I see people and they, and they speak and communicate, I see two people at once. I see the adult self-image they have of themselves. And then I see the little boy and girl who's just they're always there. Because to me, the little boy and the little girl is their nervous system. Whereas their adult self-identity is like the capacity to imagine. The other round. What do you mean? The nervous system is the adult self. Okay. My nervous system is 56 years old. I see your point. Not 12. Okay, I see your point. The imagination is where I can see myself at 12 years old and believe I'm there. I'm not. Okay, I see your point. I think that what I'm speaking to more specifically is when an event arises and someone's uncomfortable, their reaction is them returning to... Correct. That's, so that's my thinking I'm, as well. Yeah, so that's the part I'm calling your little boy and little girl. Mm -hmm. And that reaction is obviously through your nervous system. It's a response. But your self-image is a capacity to think. So that's an adult thing to do. You, you know, when a child's born, their brain continues developing and they don't even develop a sense of self until a few years later. No child comes out of the womb going, Woo! I'm Johnny. No, they come out going, Colors? Oh, what's colors. Johnny? Yeah, yeah. Johnny is the noise that we get to make to attract their attention. Yeah. So you develop the capacity to self-identify. And then the illusion so. that I am Johnny. Because yes. that's not reality. No, it's not. It's just a noise. But that's the adult self. That's what I refer to as the adult self. And so, to your point, men in prison who are actually five-year-old little boys, but they're just grown giants at this point, every individual who's trying not to feel something is because they've returned to being that oh, little, yeah. little argon, boy and girl. Theory. <laughs> yeah, they, you know, they've returned to you know, being that little boy and girl who's trying to escape some sort of thing. But I just see those as two dual things. And I see this for me personally, at least, at least that's how I interpret it. When I see people or work with people, they're in an adult relationship. 
something's happened. And let's say they didn't know this, of course, because you don't know what you expect, but their partner behaves in a way and their expectations are not met. More times than not, most people self-punish themselves for having expectations. Oh, I shouldn't have expected that. I should transcend my expectations. And it's kind of like, no, 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 no. You're a human being that has emotional needs. You don't punish yourself for having expectations. Those are all right. And it's okay that they weren't met. Can I interject here? And so now we're punishing the punisher. Now we're punishing the punisher. The punisher being who? So I had an experience because I had an expectation. This experience was negative, but now I'm saying I shouldn't have expected anything. Mm And what I'm saying is, why the hell do we punish the one who had the expectations and the one who's deciding that expectations were a good thing? You know, the more we're getting into um, not accepting anything. So, you know? Yeah, that's uh, it, yeah, yeah. So we can go into 26 layers. Yeah, any response is the wrong response, you're saying. Any response is, is, so, the anger wasn't the right response. The the judgment of the anger wasn't the right response. But again, I'm saying something negative about the judgment of the anger. Yeah. So I'm judging the judger who's judged the angry one. That's not good. Can I judge that one another time? Come on. Can we just say that everything is part of the human experience and who cares anyway? Yeah. Because we live in the middle between the immensities and this is so small. Yeah. But a lot of times in those moments, I'm just like, okay, so what's, what's, the, what's the, to this point, what's the original thing? Okay, but so you had expectations. Why do we want to know what the original thing is about? And, uh, no, it's not so much that I'm uh, me or that person wants to know. It's more like I just want them to feel safe enough to feel what they're feeling and know that it's okay to feel that way. Yeah, so we don't really care about the original yeah, so thing. Yeah, it's not, it's it's not like to return there to psychologically identify it, but it's just like, oh, you feel sad because that's your emotional reaction or your response to yeah, something Yeah, and then you feel pissed and off you know that you said. Yeah, and that's but you fine know too. Just be sad. What's wrong with being sad? Just be sad. Or just be pissed off that you're sad. Yeah. And why not the both yeah. at the same time? Yeah, Who cares? True, doesn't yeah. matter. You know, And when I'm saying we're living in that really, really tiny time space, you know, I'm referring to the human life. There's the immensity of what happened before I was born, the immensity of what's going to happen once I'm gone. And if I'm lucky, I've got 80 years. It's really not a lot. Mm-hmm. So it, it, everything in there is really quite small. That, that's where I was going with that. And uh, yeah, it, it can be also quite confusing. All these emotions and all these things that we kind of take seriously can be extremely confusing. Um, so uh, judging it and making it into more complicated things just makes it more complicated mm-hmm. <laughs> and, less, <laughs> and less pleasant. So here we go. The meaning of life. Um, I imagine is much you have in... a very strong one. Sorry? I imagine you have a very good one. Have fun. <laughs> <laughs> See, there you go. <laughs> yeah, having fun. And so for me, having fun is learning. 
um, because I'm just uh, I'm just really nosy and curious. And that's probably one of the reasons why I started this job in the first place. I didn't become nosy and no. interfering because I did that for a job. It's just that I channeled what I was naturally very curious about everything. And that's why I keep learning. That was actually one of my questions for you. What instigated you to get involved in this kind of work? I didn't do it on purpose. I got, did I not tell you that story? Yet? No, I feel like you just said that. And I'm like, oh, I think she's told me this before. Yeah. But please. Yeah. So. I don't know, when I was 17, 18 years old, it was time to, I finished high school. It was time, I like how you said that, it was time. Once upon a <laughs> to time. Make, to, make, to make a decision. <laughs> it was time to make a decision yeah. into what to study next, because I could have gone to work, but hey. Um, and I already had a job anyway. So, you know, I was kind of vaguely making ends meet when you do when you're 17, which is not very well. Had a very, very small room and ate a lot of pasta. Um, and. So going to study something, yeah, absolutely, but what? So I really didn't know. And I, I went to um, the university and queued up in a place that was called Human Science and Communication. You know, there was, um, what are they called, signs everywhere, and you just queue up to get enlisted. We're in the 80s now, so there's no internet, email, nothing. Um, to to get enrolled in university, so you gotta show up with your little degree that you just got, you know, end of uh, secondary school. Show them that and decide what you wanna do. So, human science and communication. Not many people there. Sounds like there won't be too much science and not too much, um, you know, maths and things that are sticky a bit in my mind. So. It might be an easy thing with a bit of luck. There'll be languages, there'll be essays to write. I'll be able to be quite fluid in my thinking. Let's do that. And that had sociology, linguistics, philosophy, and psychology components. Perfect. These things, I've got no idea what they are, but they sound fine. So I'm just going to enroll with this. And I also needed more of an interesting job than waiting tables and changing nappies and stuff like that. So I, I got myself a job working in prison and I went to university and I did the both at the same time. And as they both evolved, they, they kind of informed each other. By my job in prison, I was understanding more of the theories that I was reading and, and uh, listening to the lectures. And by the lectures, I was understanding more of what I was actually doing in prison because I really had no idea. I was all of 18 years old, um, you know, and so it was quite fun and quite interesting. And then, it, and then I had another job working with um, different kind of people, um, drug, addict, drug addicts in two different settings. And my jobs kind of slowly became internships. And my studies kind of slowly became psychology, but it, it kind of bounced off each other. Yeah. And so I didn't, there was no moment in my head when I went, I want to study psychology, uh, psychology and I want to become a psychologist and that's what I want to do as a job. It kind of didn't happen like that. You know, it happened quite organically with the, the mind and the, and the job working together and dancing together a little bit. And, and I came out of that uh, six years later with a degree. And I looked for a job that had a title of something that looked like what was written on my degree because I could carry on doing the same thing. 
So that's how it happened. It's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> that's the short yeah. version of the of the story. But it it just means that again, this is the curiosity of the mind. You know, I just I, I loved reading those books and understanding how the mind works. And I loved doing those jobs and meeting those people that were com from a completely different planet to mine, actually. Um, yeah, so, um, so yeah, so I, I just learned the theory and practiced people and more theory, more people. Um, and, and uh, you know, um, that's where I am 30-something years later. Jeez, that's a long time. Okay, I think that's a great time to call it. <laughs> How are we doing now? Hour and a half now? Hour and 45. Oh, that's heaps. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Are you very welcome. It was, welcome. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you uh, here today. Thank you so much for responding to me asking you to come to this and, and yeah, be my first guest on the show. <laughs> well, I've never done this before. Yeah. So, you know, when anything new comes about, I'm just going to jump in it and see what happens. The curious mind. <laughs> the curious mind, exactly <laughs> yeah. right. No, yeah. I just, I love so much how you think and how you approach things and it fascinates me. And so... I have to I simplify just, everything. That's what I'm thinking. I want to understand everything, but I have to simplify it. Because if I, if it gets jargonified or, or too complicated, then yes, I could go down that and look intelligent and, you know, write essays and books and PhDs and stuff. But it doesn't mean I understood anything. I think it's one from Einstein who says, if you can't explain it to a five-year-old, you didn't get it. Yeah, yeah, I've heard this before as well. Um, maybe in a different way. The five-year-old's involved. <laughs> but in a different, it's more like, uh, uh, it's a bit different, sorry. Learn a subject, explain it to a five-year-old. If you can't, you don't understand it yourself. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. I well, so we'll blame Einstein for this one, but it might be somebody else. Who knows? You know, you, you said you're like, I'm trying to learn. I can be very philosophical and intelligent about it, but you got to rip it all down and make it very basic. Otherwise, you don't. And you say that, and um, it's something I think about a lot, but I always also am very, like, as I'm learning a lot of this stuff for myself, I'm like, well, let me say it like this. If when I see people who work in their craft for a very, very long time, they can express their craft very effortlessly. Yes. They've been doing it for a very long time. That's what allows them to do what they're doing. And then when I see that person, because now we have video, if I see that person much, much earlier in their career, they were that making it very complex, making all this stuff. So there's this natural progression that gets them to realize like the complexity ruins everything. But it's almost like the desire for the complexity, the desire to see what's deeper, what's further, is what drives them to try and look for more. So and then they somehow naturally arrive at this place where it's like, it was never about the complexity. Yes. It was about the knowingness. But you like have to go through the... Well, yes. me, I had to go. I can't speak for other people. I had to go through the complexity to get it to that level where it kind of becomes self-evident. I had to read books that were called The Synaptic Self. Let's look inside the cells of the brain and figure out where the self sense of self comes from. <laughs> Fuck if that makes any sense to me right now. But I really had to look into the complexity of the brain and the theories of memory reconsolidation to understand the simple things that I'm doing with trauma right now. Mm -hmm. You know, I just really had to go there. 
and I'm free from it. I came out the other side. Yeah. And now I'm being a little bit more efficient in my job and I've only got 10 years to go and then it's over. So I'm sharing it. I'm, I'm helping students around and supervising people a little bit because it's not where it's the most interesting part of the job. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Anne. I had a great time. Thank you so much for coming to Yes! Come on! Come on.